You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay. All right. Okay, so it's Le'ili Nishmas or Refuah Shleim of who, Josh? Okay. When Josh comes back, he's going to remind me again. Josh, who is it again? Shalom. Shalom ben Arye Leib. It is, remind me, what is it? it Rafua or? I'm sorry, uh, Shlomo. Shlomo? Shlomo. Ben Arye Leib. Ben, yes. As a what, please? Remind me, Rafua or? Uh, he unfortunately recently passed away. So for okay. an aliyah to the soul, his soul should Aliyah Nishama of, of Shoma Benari Leif. Okay, so this is a fundamental learning class. What we're trying to do is learn, uh, get information that we need, but more than that, to actually grow in terms of our uh, capabilities of study. So, you know, the Talmud has always been the main place that people have looked for for Jewish learning. It doesn't necessarily give you what is your halacha, how you're supposed to act, um, and practically, case by case, but the Talmud is definitely where halacha is based on. But more than that, it's really the way Jewish people have thought. It, 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 was, so, it was so much the overwhelming method of, of, of teaching and information that was absorbed that it really shapes the Jewish mentality. Whether you've ever studied Talmud or not, the ability to ask questions, the ability to be skeptical, uh, to hold two or three possibilities in your head at one time, uh, to be able to discern shades of gray. These are all factors of what I would call the Jewish intelligence and what I believe is part of the Talmudic mind. And that's why I think learning Talmud is is, is so crucial. Um, it doesn't necessarily have um, the, it doesn't necessarily take you on wings of poetry and beauty. Sometimes it does, but that's not really what it's about. It's about discerning and understanding and sometimes being able to turn back on a dime and reject what you've been talking about for the last page and a half because you now discovered a question that now that whole edifice needs to be now stuffed away. Um, it's, and, and that's part of what frustrates many people because it's not straightforward. Uh, I told Josh that any piece of Talmud could really give you a sense of what learning Gemara is. And I don't know if the thing that I've chosen is the most um, indicative of what's considered typical Talmud page. But I think this Gemara that we're studying is going to ring a bell because of the time period, because we are approaching close to just two weeks before Pesach. And I think, therefore, we have Pesach on our mind, and we're thinking about how we're going to deal with Pesach and these incredible, terrible circumstances that we find ourselves in. Uh, so I think it's worthwhile. It's going to be something which I think you have an interest in. And I think it's something that uh, uh, already gives you a sense of what Talmud is wherever you're going to study it. So I, I welcome everyone here. I hope this is going to be something that's effective for you, and I hope it's something that you can uh, – now, I'm gonna, if you can see, there's also a chat button, and you're going to be able to put your messages in on the chat, uh, whatever you want, and I will respond to them. Um, I, I think today – let's start with 45 minutes today. 
Uh, I don't want to overdo it, and then we'll see how things go. Okay, I have a doctor's appointment today anyway. Don't worry about it. I'm not so concerned about it, but I made it last week, and I am uh, so I, I have uh, things that I need to do. But we are going to get 45 minutes in, and we'll get started right now. So let's take a look at the uh, at the actual classic Gemara page that uh, I was telling you to look at before. And I'm trying to open it up on my computer right now. And let's see. For some reason, I'm having a hard time opening it up. But let me try it again. Those you can... Okay. Um, okay. Um, I'm having a little bit of a, t- a hard time. For some reason, I guess I'm, my my second computer here is having a little bit of a hard time opening it up. So I'm going to actually do a little bit of a shtick here and find it from another source. But it's really the same thing. I'm going to be going to a different uh, website to find it. All of you should have it. And let's take a look at the page that we're after. So it's Psochem Dav Kufches Amid Aleph. Sorry for the glitch here. And let's take a look. You know what? Um, give me one second, please. I'm uh, my other com. Okay, my other computer is sort of having a hard time. Uh, it's hard time opening this file. So let me try it again. Um, Rabbi, you don't have the old-fashioned version. You got a lot uh, of books behind you. Yes, Avrami, I'm going to go get. I'm going to go get another. Hang on, everybody. I'm going to go. I hope. I'm going to go get a regular Gemara. But everybody else should have the Gemara there in front of them. One minute. All right, can every all right, all right. So here we are. We're on we're on the Gemara and Psachim Daf Kufches Amid Aleph. Um, the page that I sent you, uh, if you go down, I always say, <laughs> if you go down, if you start from the top, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. The sixteenth line from the top of the page. Okay, so the Gemara starts with quoting uh, a piece of the Mishnah, which I didn't make available for you. Okay, so as you can see, it says that even an Ani, uh, the very poor person, uh, no matter how poor he is, actually, even the what's considered the lowest or, or poor person, Afilu even, the lowest poor person. Per- to where on the page i'm uh, sorry uh, it was a little quick and i wasn't uh, okay. where in the page so it's i think it's the 16th line or 18th 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 12 13, 14 15 the, the 16th yeah kufhesam it off the page 1 i sent three pages 
So it should be mm-hmm. the first page, the 16th line, uh, the third word of the 16th line. Is this the, the one, the smaller box? This is the first page or right? that, that one? Yes, yes. Okay, perfect. I, I was on the so. other page. Okay, thank you. I believe so. I'm not sure. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. Okay, Avrami, what's going on? <laughs> that That's not the right page, Josh. No. Okay. No. You want the longer one, then. What is the you want the, the one with the long box with the little leg on? Uh, I can't right, see. I it's too close to the camera. All right, I got it. It's you want the one with the little uh, the long page with the little uh, the little stump on the side. You want to be by the two dots near the top of the page. Got it. Sixteen Perfect. lines. Got it. Okay. Okay, so let's try it again. Afilu ani um, That's a quote from a Mishnah. That's the first Mishnah in this chapter, which is the tenth chapter of Mesechtes Pesachim. Now, I didn't give you that Mishnah, as I said, but that I'm going to uh, I'm going to emphasize that line for you. Okay, uh, a afilu means even, meaning someone who has pushed the boundaries. Uh, ani, someone who's poor, someone who's quite poor, and of course one of the Jewish poor, Shebi Yisrael, Lo Yocho. He should not start his seder. He should not start his seder. Until it's time for Haseba. Let me say it better. Not time for Haseba. Until he's actually in a state of sort of what, if you can see Josh's camera, what Josh is doing. Josh is leaning over. That's what Haseba means. But it means more than that. Tosvos, one of the medieval commentators, writes that what this means is not just, we say, lean when you eat at the Seder, but it actually means to be lying down with what, whatever approximates a couch or a very, a very comfortable bed-like chair, which means even someone who is poor and doesn't have much of something, Maybe something he pulled out of the, in those days, that he couldn't pull things out of the thrift shop or stuff on the street. Even a poor person who hardly has anything, a poor person who hardly has anything, is not, a, needs, can only begin, in other words, he should do what he can to create that environment of somebody who is eating like a we would call an aristocrat, leading, eating like someone who is uh, leaning over like, like a wealthy person who is able to just enjoy himself in a languorous way. That's what the mission is saying, that the way to eat on the Seder night is an aristocratic, languorous, very what was considered a comfortable, pampered way. That's called Haseba. That's what Haseba means. Haseba means, doesn't just mean meaning. It means your whole attitude and, and mentality, which is reflected in the way your body language is and what you're doing is of someone who has all tight, someone who's not nervous. You know, one of the things that the fast food um, 
people like McDonald's and others developed to get people out of the building was to have chairs that were uncomfortable. Part of what they wanted to do was to have hard plastic chairs where you had to sit upright. And this way, it moves. A person comes to eat his, uh, his Big Mac or whatever it is. I don't think I have that ability. Uh, I don't know how to do that. So, so even if somebody has, if, again, if you want to ask a question, please, you, you can, if you can just mute your microphone. When you want to ask a question, then you can, then you can uh, uh, please speak in. But, but the point I was trying to make is, is that when we think about fast food eating, it's hard chairs get out of there quickly. What the Mishnah is, 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 is promoting and is saying should be done is languorous, comfortable eating. That is part of what the Night of the Seder demands. And that is called Hasein. And the Mishnah had said, no matter how wealthy a person is, he shouldn't begin to eat, and he shouldn't say to himself, "What do I have? This is not a, a, a this is not a real comfortable sofa. This is barely a pillow." He does his best. Maybe people should try to help him out and give him sofas and things like that. But the point is, is that he does his best to approximate that physical state, which is meant to bring out that mind of what does it mean to be free person on the night of Pesach, which is really what, is, what this is about. We know that our physical situation influences our mental state. I read this morning from a doctor who was saying, even though we're all isolated and we're stuck in our rooms, we should get dressed and, and, and act as if we are going to work. And when we do our work, we should, we, should, we should dress the way we would dress when we would go into business. The reason is, of course, is because your physical, what you do physically, the way you dress, and the way you sit, and what you force yourself to do creates a mental attitude. And that is what happens the night of the Seder as well. The rabbis understood that. And they said, I don't care if you're poor. Today, you're in a different mode. You're different than you are the rest of the week. Today, it's not about sitting and eating quickly. Today, it's about enjoying and being part of a great process, something that you're going to mentally take in besides the food that you're going to eat. Okay, am I going too slow for everybody, or is this is, is this is this a good is this a good pace? It, it, tell me if I'm going too slow. You can you can text in if you want, but this is this is this is the introduction to what we're talking about. And I know for again, remember it's a fundamental Talmud class. So this is where it is. Lo yochal. So let's read it again. Afil lo yochal ad Okay, that is what the Mishnah said. All right. So I'm assuming this is a good pace. Now we start the Gemara. The first word right after that, as you see, is the word Itamar. Alephutof Memresh. Itamar is one of, is, if those of you that have learned Gemara a number of times have probably seen this term many often. Itamar means this was a discussion. Who recorded the discussion? I'll leave that for the historians. But it was a discussion that was recorded 
in one of the yeshivas in Babylonia, and that's what Itamar means. They were discussing this. What were they discussing? Well, we don't know the names of the people who discussed it, but we knew it was a discussion that was worthy of being recorded. Let's see the first words. Itamar. So this will be the next line. Matzah tzorich haseba. Going along with that is moror ein tzorich haseba. So matzah tzorich haseba, moror ein tzorich haseba. Now remember what I just said before about what haseba means. Oh, now it's logical. Why, when you eat the matzah, you need to eat it in such a fashion. Because matzah is about, even though we say holach ma'anya, in the beginning of the Seder, that it's the it's the poor person's bread that they ate when they were afflicted. But matzah, of course, the reason why we eat matzah is because it is the symbol of our exodus, the symbol of the, what we call ge'ula, which means, of course, the restoration of Klal Yisrael. Matzah is about ge'ula. Matzah is about redemption and being restored to what who we're supposed to be. Okay, we know why, because of the history behind why the matzah, why they had to eat matzah and couldn't eat bread. Because they knew they were going for a long period. They didn't have time to bake bread. They were being rushed. All those things make it seem as if matzah is something that is cheap. But really, based on our knowledge of the history, matzah is about the symbol of what they took with them when they were free people. They ate the matzah and they left holding the matzah. They'd ate the matzah the night before. They're on the road. They're out of Mitzrayim. They're feeling incredible. They're feeling very high from a year of miracles. And the greatest miracle just happened the night before, which was leaving Mitzrayim, Makos Bechoros, which the, the Haggadah says is actually Gilui Shechina. What happened was they felt God permeating within them. They felt, they felt like they were on clouds. And they were actually, because the clouds were ahead of them. Al-Kanfeinishorim, on eagles' wings. Yad Ramah. These are all different terms the Torah uses about how the Jews felt and the state of mind they were in. So the matzah, which is what they took with them, which they ate the night before and they were taking with them, that is the symbol of being in a state that we call cherus, of, of freedom, aristocracy, of being a different person than people have been telling you are. So obviously, the matzah needs to be eaten in that type of physical mind, physical way. You have to be leaning over. You have to be leaning, as we know. We're going to talk about which way you lean. But you physically, your body has to align itself with what you're eating. You can't just eat it and pop it in your mouth and chew it. And this, of course, is an important talacha because... Maybe if you don't do this, you might have to re-eat the matzah. So let's read the words again. Matzah tzorach haseba, moror ein tzorach haseba. Moror, actually, it doesn't jive. It doesn't need haseba. Tzorach means it must be. Moror ein tzorach haseba. Moror doesn't need to have haseba. And and the reason is um, the... uh, Rashi points out on the right, if you want to take a look, at there's actually on the side of the page, you do have uh, a Rashi and Rashbam. If you look on the right side of the page, I always tell my students that the printers of the Talmud 
recognized that the 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 middle of the page is sort of like the heart of the Talmud page, and therefore Rashi will always be close to the middle. Rashi is close to the heart, as much as what's on the other side, which is called Tosfos, which is in this, which adds to the ideas of Rashi and makes things a little bit clearer sometimes. But it's not the heart of your learning. Therefore, the, it, it, depending on which side of the page it is, it's always going to be in a, in a printed book. It'll always be closer to the to the middle, the binding of the book. Right. So Rashi, Josh, it would be to the right. In other words, you have the you have the bigger text, you have the the large text in the middle in the block. Right. So Rashi, there. That's Rashi. Yes, Josh. That would be Rashi. Now, in, in this chapter of, 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 of Shas, we have a little bit of an anomaly. We have Rashi and his grandson, both. We have the commentary of Rashi and his grandson. Um, that's what it says, Rashbam. Right in the middle of the page, we have those four letters, Rashin Bezmem. That's Rashbam, Rab Shmuel ben Meir. Rashi famously, as we know, had only daughters. All his sons, all his, he didn't have sons. His sons were his son-in-laws. And um, one of his daughters married a man called Rabbi Meir. Uh, we don't know much about him. I'm sure he was, a, 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 he, was, he was lucky to get himself a very nice girl, Rashi's daughter. But Meir and, and Rashi's daughter, I, I forgot what her name was, uh, gave birth to two great little children. One of them was about, I guess, nine or ten years older than the other. One's name was Shmuel, and the other's name was Yaakov. Shmuel ben Meir was the Rashbam, that we call him, Shmuel ben Meir. His little brother ended up becoming a lot more famous than him. His little brother's name was Jacob, or Yaakov, Yaakov Tam. He was later called Yaakov Tam, because Yaakov was known in, in the Torah as someone who had um, been completely given over to uh, studying and staying in the tent of learning. It's interesting that this man, Yaakov ben Meir ben Shlomo, I'm sorry, ben Meir, son-in-law of Shlomo, Rashi, uh, this Yaakov was actually a businessman as well, although he studied quite a bit. And he became really one of the greatest teachers in the, of the Middle Ages. Maybe not surpassing his grandfather, but in, in many ways, almost as famous in, some, in terms of learning Gemara. And that is his name is Rabbeinu Tam. He's known as our teacher, Tam or Yaakov. His older brother was Shmuel. That, again, is Rashi's grandson. Now, Shmuel was lucky enough to have seen his grandfather and spent time with him and studied with him. His grandfather was working on commentary to help people through the texts of the Talmud and, of course, the Chumash, and Nevi'im as well. It was a life's work. And Rashi, of course, was a master in terms of writing. However, as you know, the first editions aren't always the best. In many ways, your first edition is your, what we call your... Um, your scratch paper. It's almost what you're just thinking, and I'm going to redo it. The commentary on the 10th parak of Psachim is sort of Rashi's 
first edition, it wasn't really a complete commentary. So his grandson decided to add to it and give us a more expansive version, sort of in the spirit of what he thinks his grandfather was going to do. So what we have on the right side of the page, I, I call truncated Rashi. And below that is Rashi's grandson, who is sort of, in a way, imitating his grandfather, expanding on the notes that his grandfather left. In many ways, most of the time, what you're going to see on, on in, in this chapter, in terms of Rashi and Rashbam, are pretty very similar. Now, what you have there on the left, Josh, is Tosfos. That's Tosfos. But Rashbam is the bottom part of the right. You can see in the middle of the page the four Hebrew letters, Reishin, Beis, Mem. You can see that in the middle of the page on the right, separating the two parts of, of, of this classic page. Okay? So Rashbam and Rashi have one purpose on, as far as we're concerned, to help the reader along, to basically provide connecting words and provide the phrases and the information from other places that allow the reader to have comprehension. Okay? So, I have, I'm turning to them because the, the Gemara had said that matzah needs haseba. Matzah needs to be eaten in such a way. Matzah needs to be eaten with that physical, the physical, your body and, and things around you in the aristocratic, leaning, sleeping, not sleeping, but a leaning over a type of position where you're actually supine. You're lying down lazily, languorously. But matzah needs it. Maror does not need it. Okay. So the Rashba, the, we could do the Rashi, um, just to show you. Um, if you go to the right side of the page where the Rashi starts, that's on the right side of the page, the, 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 you can see the Rashi script. You go down, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. The ninth line, you can see at the end of the line, it says, Ad save in bold letters. And then the tenth line, it says, Haseba Al-Sad Haseba Al-Sad The Rashi first is telling you that we're talking about leaning or lying down, lying on your left is what we're talking about. Now, we're going to see later in the Talmud why lying or supine, not supine. You're right, not supine. Thank you, Avrami. Side lying is better. But you're lying down on on your left. And um, the reason why it's on your left is for people that are right-handed. Uh, let's say I'm right-handed. So if I lean to my right, it's hard for me to eat because... I have to, my right hand is low. If I read on my left, I can use my right hand to bring food to my mouth, which is, which is lower. Right? The assumption is most people are right-handed. And for them, it's more comfortable to eat with their right. That would be a, because right? the point is not to, to make your body seem strange. The point is, is to actually pretend 
or to imagine or to actually be someone who is an aristocrat, someone who has all day to eat, someone who's, again, I, I think about the famous line from some Hollywood movie, peel me a grape, Hattie. I forgot who it was exactly, but some woman is lying and, 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 and the maid is coming over and giving her grape to eat. That, that's sort of what we're talking about, if, you've, if you understand what I'm saying. So the Rashi has said to us what Haseba means. It means to the left. Okay, let's see the next Rashi. Matzatzricha Haseba, kibnei chorin, like people that are actually free. And the word chorin, um, we hear it a lot. I believe it doesn't just mean freedom. There's other places in the Torah that the word chorim means, like it, like it speaks about by the sar ha'ofim. The sar ha'ofim, it says that his baskets were called baskets of chori. These were by Joseph's dream, not by Joseph's dream, by when Joseph interpret Yosef interpreted the dreams of the two prisoners that were with him. Yeah. One of the prisoners was a baker. And in his dream, he says that he had baskets of chorim. He had chori baskets. Not now. He's a brilliant guy. Okay, thank you. But please, you can you can put your uh, mic down. Thank you. So the the baskets, um, the baskets were called. Uh, um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Somebody will help me. Um, so the baskets were called baskets fancy, aristocratic, the baskets you would see in a palace. Sali Chori. The word Chori doesn't just mean free. It means you are of the highest level of society. A Ben Chorim is somebody who isn't just free, that nobody can tell him what to work. It's not that he's a non-slave. He's actually positively something great, something that's part of the highest uh, echelon of society. Okay. So that's what it means to be a Ben Chorim. And that's what Rashi has said. We'll go to the Rashi now again. Because you aren't just a, a bum. You aren't just a poor guy who's looking for a handout. You're someone, whoever you are, tonight you are a Ben Chorim. As Rashi goes on, So obviously you have to eat it as if and again, it doesn't make a difference what is going on in the actual contemporary times around you. It doesn't make a difference how poor you are, how many pogroms are going on. Jews eat matzah in this way. They eat matzah, and they eat matzah in this langorous, uh, side-leaning couch, if they have couch bed way. Now, the Mara, however, Rashi tells us, the next Rashi, because it's a zecher, it reminds us of our persecution and our enslavement. Okay? So that is the idea of, of, of moror. Moror, the bitter herb, or the, the, the romaine lettuce, and we'll talk about why it's 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 not really bitter. Why is it that we eat it? Again, that's not really the point today. But we know when you eat the moror, it isn't about when we are leaving. It's not about being on a high aristocratic 
upper echelon, and therefore it actually is probably wrong to eat it leaning. It's it, 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 you're sending mixed messages. So let's go back to the Gemara again. So let's start again from the sixth at sixteenth line, seventeenth uh, line. Itmar matzah tzorech haseiba, moror ein tzorech haseiba. But now, what about the other mitzvah? Yayin, when it comes to the drinking of wine. We know there's four cups of wine. We all know that. And we know we drink it at four different stages. We drink the first cup at Kiddush, just like any holiday or any Shabbos, any Shabbat night. The second cup we drink is after we tell the story. We go through the story of how we were in Mitzrayim and how we came out. And we speak about the incredible night of the 15th of Nisan. And then we sing part of Hallel. And we sing about how great things were. You might say Dayenu and other things as well. And all these things are really about after we mention all the 10 plagues and how we've gone out of Mitzrayim. And then we make a special brocha and we lift our cup up and we say, you redeemed us, and you brought us forth, and we're going to have a Beit HaMikdash, we hope, very soon. That's the bracha we say, Ga'al Yisrael, that you redeemed the Jews. And then we drink the second cup. Okay. That's the second cup. The third cup, as you know, is what is uh, imbibed right after the Birchat HaMazon, after benching. In fact... You're supposed to really, according to many opinions, use a cup every time you bench, even if it's not Shabbat or Yom Tov, even if you're only eating by yourself, according to some opinions. It's a three-way debate whether you use a cup of wine every time you do, you say Birchat HaMazon. But it's really connected to Birchat HaMazon. The Birchat HaMazon is a very important mitzvah. And therefore, I said, there's some opinions that say, even if you're all by yourself, you use a cup of wine, and after the Birchat HaMazon is over, you say, showing how important the Birchat HaMazon was. Okay, so that's your third cup at the night of the Seder. And your fourth cup, of course, you pour the cup soon after, a new fourth cup, and then you hold the cup or you have the cup with you during the time that we call Nirza or Hallel, right? Hallel, I'm sorry, when you're singing uh, the praises of God, and you're just, you're you're way past Mitzrayim even. Although you do mention Mitzrayim, you're thinking about the future, and 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 uh, you're, you're you're transported, also by the fact that you've already drank quite a bit, and you've had a good big meal, to boot on top of that. So that's your fourth cup of wine, and the, at the fourth cup sort of ends the seder once you make that bariyagofen. Those are your four cups. Now. How does your body have to be during those four cups? That is the Gemara's question. So let's look inside and see. Yayin, what about wine? We know matzah, definitely. Moror, nah, doesn't make sense. What about the wine? How about wine? Well, itmar, it was said over, mishmei de Rav Nachman, in the name of Rav Nachman, one of the great teachers of the Talmud. Rav Nachman was a, a, a teacher in Babylonia, and his name is throughout Shas. I would say he's an Amora, and he's about a, a fourth generation, third or fourth generation Amora, maybe third or fourth. 
Um, he is he carries a lot of weight, Rav Nachman. His student is the famous Rava, Abaya and Rava. But Rava is always asking Rav Nachman questions. Rav Nachman himself saw himself as a student of the school of Shmuel in, in Babylonia of Nardov. Rav Nachman was very close to the uh, the official political head for the Jews, the Reish Galusa. He married one of the Reish Galusa's daughter. So he was somebody that was seen as a great teacher and a great statesman for Jewish issues during in Babylonia. So it isn't surprising that there should be a, a sort of like two versions of what he said. Itmar, it was said over Mishmei de Rav Nachman, in the name of Rav Nachman, Tzorech HaSeba, that you do need to lean. You do need to be side-leaning, couch-leaning, bed, uh, comfortable, languorously, when you're drinking the wine. Obviously, you got to be careful, as we're going to talk about soon, but that's the way you need to be when you're drinking the wine. The Itmar Mishmei de Rav Nachman, but then there was another uh, a statement also claiming to come from the same man, the same rabbi, with the same pedigree, ain't Sarah Haseba. Hmm. So we have a contradiction in traditions. This is very confusing. It happens in the Talmud a lot. What did the man say? Now, normally, when I uh, see something like this, I put on my historian's hat and I say, hmm, you know, I know when I give a class, I many times talk about two possibilities. And I'll say, maybe it's this way. And then I'll explain why it could be this way. And then I'll sometimes go the other direction and say, well, you know what? I can make an argument the other way, and it could be actually this way. And one student really likes the first way I said it. In fact, he was so enamored by it, he's sure that I believe the first way is where I'm really at. But I'm just a great teacher, and I just put a lot of energy into it and made it seem like that opinion was the best. Then I went with the other opinion. And the other opinion, I also explained it strongly. Well, the listeners sort of said, didn't necessarily hear the whole class or didn't realize where I was leaning. In fact, my whole class might have been to to give two possibilities. And I do a great job with possibility one and a great job with possibility two. And one group of students think I'm apt, I'm actually leaning towards possibility one. And the other group of students think I'm leaning towards possibility two. And that's why there becomes a contradiction. What did the rabbi say? There's also the chance, just like here in this chat, in this um, go to meeting, that some people came in in the middle. Right? Some people just joined in the middle and only heard the middle of the class and only heard me emphasize one side of the argument. Or, just like here, people have to leave. They have things to go to. Oh, you know what? I'm bored by Kivalevich. I heard what he said. They didn't see that I was saying another possibility. That could have happened with Rav Nachman as well. That the, there were people who were there for the first half and heard one thing. The people were there for the second half heard something else. And then Rav Nachman passed away. He was gone. So people said, oh, I heard Nachman say this. I heard Nachman say that. And therefore, there becomes a contradiction in traditions. What was it that Rav Nachman really said? Okay, so that's that's how these things can happen. 
There wasn't any recording. There wasn't any exact notes. And because of that, we have contradictions about what the rabbi said. Okay? Now, but the Gemara, does, the Gemara actually feels there's a simple way to explain what Rav Nachman meant. So let's see what the Gemara says. Everybody understand. So Itmar Mishmei the Rav Nachman Sarach about the four cups. The Itmar Mishmei the Rav Nachman and Sarach that you don't have to be side leaning during the four cups. But now the Gemara says we're not going to say that one that these are just two opinions and we're not going to be able to figure out what what Nachman really meant. We're going to say if there are two conflicting opinions. Probably what Rav Na- and they and they aren't saying that Rav Nachman was thinking one way. Each opinion said Nachman said you don't lean. Nachman said you do lean. Hmm. The Talmud now thought about it. The people, the brains of the Talmud thought about it and said, "Below plige. Hey, if we have two traditions from what this rabbi said, he probably said both. And below plige, there was no argument." The two sides are not really in contention with each other. Why? Because ha bitarte kasi kamoi, ha bitarte kasi basroi. Now, uh, let's see. Let's just read the Aramaic again. Ha this bitarte. Somebody's ringing there. I, I know it's not me. Ha <laughs> bitarte kasi kamoi. The word tarte is Aramaic for two. Kasi is a cup or cups. Tarte kasi, the two cups. Kamoi, the first two cups. Tarte kasi kamoi, the first two cups. Ha, the other statement, is bitarte kasi basroi. The second, or the later, two cups. In other words, the Gemara is introducing the idea that there are four cups of wine, but they are different. The first two are of one type, and the second two are of a different type. They occur in a different time during what we call the Seder. One is the Kiddush and leading us after the story of the of the Exodus, the story of the Geula. And the other one is benching after you've eaten this sumptuous meal and after you are picking up the cup and singing Hallel. The two are very different. And therefore, the body language that's necessary are different. Some two of them are going to need, are going to demand the body language of someone who is a, a, an aristocratic free person, and the other two actually shouldn't have that. So, or don't need it and really shouldn't have it. So what? So that was the answer. Now that would be great if we could probably figure it out. We have about we have about twelve people here. We could probably figure out which one makes more sense. Well, again. Shoot, let's say I, I, if the Gemara stopped here, what I would the say. Last, the last two, you have to, the last two, you have to be Maseva because, because one is looking for, for the uh, future redemption. That's uh, at, at the end. 
And uh, when you're eating, it also sh shows that, uh, you, that you're an aristocrat. Good. But the other two are talking about Abdus. Good. You know, well, the iron that you say in Kiddush is all, is all the time for Yad Vashavis. But the second one is right in the, in the depth of, 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 of Abdus. Whereas the last two is talking about the final redemption uh, and, uh, and, and eating like an aristocrat, even if you're poor. Okay. So thank you, Hanach. Thank you, Henry. <laughs> thank you, Hanach. That is, I, I would actually, my guts would have told me the same thing. That if you're going to tell me you only lean for two out of the four cups, the two, the two, I would say the two later cups are the ones where I'm on a cloud nine. I'm, I'm leaning, uh, I'm a king today, and, and the story I just told proved it. That would be my gut feeling as well. However, we're going to be surprised. The actually, this is where the Gemara sort of becomes a complexity within a complexity. Let's see what the Gemara says. The Gemara says, Amri law, the next line. Amri law lahai gisa, va amri law lahai gisa. When people, again, so this is really four, this is really three levels of, 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 of learning. It's complicated, and this is, I told you, the Gemara becomes complex right away. So here we go. The first level is, uh, Rav Nachman will start, well, I guess the first uber level is there's an idea of Haseba, and it applies to the night of the Seder. The Talmud then discussed which stages of the Seder do you need to have your body in such a position. We know, despite the speaking that's going on, there's also imbibing that's going on. And the three things that need to be imbibed, other than the meal, is matzah, moror, and wine. We already, it's clear to us, matzah, you need to be leaning. Moror, it doesn't make sense to lean. When it comes to wine, we had, we had two conflicting positions in the name of the great Rav Nachman. That, so there was level two. Level three said, we don't believe that there was a, an argument between the two, but rather, it's one is going on the one of the statements is referring to the first two cups and the other is referring to the second two cups. But now, which one was referring to what? Now we have a level where the Talmud is telling us that was itself a debate. There were some that said Nachman's statement about leaning on two cups was referring to the last two cups which is what you heard Henry say, and make a very good point. But there are some that actually thought that would not, this, what this would mean is actually the first two cups. And the last two cups, you don't need to lean. Now, it's counterintuitive, as Henry gave you that argument. So we're going to see, and this is what we're going to, we're going to go through this, and I'm going to explain both sides. So let's see it inside in the Gemara. That the Gemara is actually going to think the other way, that maybe the first two cups are the ones where you need to be in an aristocratic state. Let's see why. So Amri Leila, well, let's see it again, the words inside in the Gemara. So if, if we started with line 16, this would be line 17, 18, 19, 20. 21, 22. Line 22. And it's good to use your pencil to make, to, to number the lines in the middle. Amri lehaigisa, amri lehaigisa. 
Some said one way. Some explained it one way on one side. Gisa is like a side. The Amri like and some explained it on the other side. Amri Lehai Gisa, the ones that said one side, said, Trey Kasi Kamoi Boy Haseba. It's the first two cups. The opposite of what Henry just said. The first two cups is probably what Nachman meant when he said, be leaning, left leaning, languorous leaning, get your sofas out. Why? Because right now, even though you're talking about how we went to Egypt and how we went down there from escaping love and whatever it was, and how we went down there and 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 and, 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 and how they persecuted us. We're talking about negatives, but it's all part of what? This is the beginning of of being an aristocrat. The beginning. Even discussing your your origin story is part of it. In other words, if we would stay, let me explain it better. If we would have never gone out, we wouldn't tell the story of how it began. The Horatio Alger story, the, 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 the kid who came from nothing to make it big, right? You start with your with your lower class roots. You start with how, you, you, as Joe Biden talks about, his hard scrabble youth in Scranton, right? Whatever it is, you start with where you began and how you scraped yourself up. So actually, this is the beginning of a story of Chairus. Therefore, even though it's kiddish and you haven't even started the story, you already, we know why you're here. You're here because you got the best silver out. You got everything set. This is the beginning of Chairus. And and even as the story ends, right, you're, you're, you are basically experiencing from the beginning as it's happening. And you're feeling those feelings of leaving Mitzrayim. You're feeling the idea of Gili Shechina as you describe the ten plagues and you describe Makas Bechoros and the Gili Shechina and you describe Kriyas Yamsuf. It's a cheiris experience. Trey Kasi Basroi, the last two cups, after the big meal and the benching, Loboy Haseba. Why? Because my Dahavi Have, it's already the past. True, you're enjoying it, you're reaping the fruits of being a Ben Khorin, but it doesn't have the excitement. It's the past already. True, you're enjoying the benefits of a great big meal and of a benching and singing the Halel. And like Hanach said, you're speaking about the future Beis Hamikdash. But it's not the event of Yitzhak Mitzrayim anymore. It's not that that overwhelming, lifting wings of eagles, power of the underdog, great story, rocky music. It's not that. And therefore, it's the past. Since it's the past, your body doesn't have to be leaning during that. It's counterintuitive. Yes. Let me, if you I, say, yeah. Let me just finish the other side. The Amri Leila Haikisa. And there are some that argued like Hanukkah argued before. There are some that said if two of them are going to be the ones where the leaning should occur and two are the ones that are not, I would say Adaraba. Underline that word, Adaraba, the opposite. You know, when we say the Talmud, I remember once when I, 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 you know, after my Talmud class, 
after my Gemara learning class, I go to the Y to swim when the Y was open. And many times I'd be rushing and I'd be coming. The swimming was 8.30 to 9.30. And sometimes I'd be coming closer to 9, 8.45, whatever it was, 8.50. And the, and the person at the Y would say, where were you? I'd say, you know, I, I, I give a Talmud class every night. So the person didn't know much about Talmud. But he said, did you do this? Did you do this? That's what he knew about the Talmud. This is sort of what this is about. Adarava, it's the opposite. What's the opposite? The two later cups, that's where your body has to be leaning. That's where you have to be languorously acting like you're, you're, you're the greatest aristocrat. Why? Because in that moment, you're reaping the benefits. That moment, that's what Chairus is. Chairus is enjoying the benefits of, of what God gave us. Now you're an aristocrat to learn Torah, to, to be with your family. Nobody tells you what to do. You talk about the future. That's what a, now is Chairus. The first two cups the first two cups, that would be the place not to lean. They don't need it. It would be on you. It would be wrong and incorrect. Why? For still, for still, you're still talking about being enslaved. Right after Kiddush, you talk about how we went down and how they pushed us around, how they made us do terrible work. You know, how could you? So this is really a, 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 a debate as to what makes sense. And both sides are making a strong argument, I think. <laughs> so now we have the sixth level or the fifth level. So what do we do, Rabbi? Do we lean or not? What do we do during the four cups? Are we supposed to lean or not? And then we're going to end with this. Hashta the itmar hochi, the itmar hochi. Each way was said. Nachman said, and we had arguments for both. And they both sound good. You're right. You're right. We don't know which one is more right. So therefore, ide vi ide. That's not ide amin. Ide vi ide. Each side is right, as far as we're concerned. And you need to lean, you need to be in a state for all four cups. It's clear Nachman never said that. <laughs> Nachman, well, at least according to the Gemara, the Gemara says Nachman said you don't need. And the Gemara assumed that was only on two cups. But since we can't decide which one makes more sense, it's, you know what? Let's, t- let's, let's put both together. Both ideas are right. During the t- telling of the story, you are on the, you're feeling the sense of the wings of eagles already, even when you're discussing how you were crushed by the boot heel of the Mitzri and how terrible it was. But you're sensing how you're going out. And during the end, you're also enjoying languorously, wonderfully, the idea of being a Ben Khorin. Let's just do a Seba all four cups. Now, Rabbi, can I, can I say something? Yes, we're, yeah, we're going to stop soon. Um, Go ahead, Anik. Go ahead. What did you want to say? Just a quick thing. Could you say that the reason you you uh, you lean at the beginning, the two cups, is because if 
the end. So historically, since we had the goal of Sibitrayim, uh, if you didn't have that, if you didn't, if if we weren't there and you didn't celebrate that, then there wouldn't be any redemption at the end. Yeah, I, I'm sort Does of saying. Okay, uh, I, I'm I'm trying to say it a little more subtle than that. Uh, I, what you're saying is definitely true. Uh, clearly, there would not have been a. But I guess my point is, is that the story is centered to create the drama and to inspire the emotion of making it so when you when we push down hard describing enslavement but we press the right buttons that will later be seen as being thrown off we 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 we, we describe right. the shackles but we want you to feel the gleam, to see the gleam of the silver or the metal of that shackle in order that when we describe how those shackles were broken, it's still in your brain how clear those shackles were there. And therefore, right. It, it, right. it stirs you strongly in an emotional way. So so we know where we're going with this story. But so we, we are we are we are telling the story in order to elicit that incredible high response when the Geula actually happens. When we get to the part of the Seder about the Geula, it's going to be so uplifting because of what we've done. Again, if we were, if we were, it's almost, I'll say it better. You remember years ago, uh, there was somebody, uh, Sally Struthers, you might remember, she had these tele, these tele, she's these commercials on television trying to, uh, get money to people who were starving in Africa. So basically what she would have was is these videos of how terrible life was and, and, and how you could help save someone. And you would see these bellies that were distended and she would tell everybody, please give money. You can maybe save this person, this child's life. You can adopt this child. So the, the film was just about the squalor because that's the, the reason why she made the film was for people to just emotionally decide to give their money and, and, and help someone. What we're trying to do on the night of Mitzrayim is to create an image of a story that has this uplifting ending. So we, we, we zero in on the details that we know are going to actually generate this positive response. So therefore, we're really in a state of cheirus to start out with. We're really in a state of cheirus even to begin with, because we know the arc of where this story is going. And, and and we anticipate it. The same way you can see Rocky ten times over, even though you know you know he's gonna somehow, you know, become a fighter, right? Or whatever story you're gonna see, an underdog story, Rudy, the the kid the guy who gets on to the Notre Dame team eventually. You can watch that movie ten times. Why? Because you could you know where it's going. Even where he's get pushed around in the locker room, you know he's gonna finally get his chance to get out there on the field and finally do something. So, so you sort of realize it's an uplifting story even from the beginning, and that's the same thing that goes on in the seder. You, you, there's no doubt where this is going, and therefore it makes sense from that way to say you should be leaning during the drinking uh, by the kiddush as well, even because because it's the time cheres is going on. Okay, I think I've tried to explain it. We're going to stop here. Uh, let me know in your comments if how you'd like this to be done differently. 
again, this is just as this is really a uh, a uh, if I'm going too slow, if I'm going too fast, let me know. This is really a project uh, that we're working on. I, I hope it was enjoyable to you. I hope you got something out of it uh, in terms of an important piece of Gemara. Okay. Shkayach, it was great. Thank you. Okay. So, like I said, you'll let me know with comments. So, we'll see you tomorrow at 12.15 at this time. All right? Okay. Take care, everyone. Fundamentals is where it's at. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.